Hi everybody, this is Patrick Donahoe. Today is March 18th. It's a Wednesday. We are live. Uh, I'm excited for this radio show. We have a lot of interesting things to talk about, but uh, just some house cleaning items before we get started. Uh, for those of you who are listening the first time, we uh, we have been doing this consistently for about six weeks now, and uh, have have had a lot of success, a lot of inter- interesting discussions. Unfortunately, and fortunately, I don't have Mark Curtis with me today, but I do have a, a good friend of mine, uh, Andy Safa from California. Uh, California, what's going on, Andy? How you doing, Patrick? I'm doing good. Uh, so we're gonna we're have some interesting discussion today about what's going on in the economy, about uh, about economics. Uh, also about money myths. But uh, for those of you who are Facebookers, uh, please uh, please check us out on Facebook. We have a we have a group. Just type in the Investors Paradigm Radio Network, and uh, you'll be updated as to uh, when we have different presentations and events, uh, and new material and so forth. Uh, also for also for those of you who haven't received our article entitled "The First Five or the Next Five Years," uh, please give us a call. That article is uh, is very interesting. It points out a lot of statistics as far as uh, what's going on in our economy and uh, the potential catastrophe it could create in the coming years. Uh, it's not a doom and gloom article. It does give a lot of solutions. We're not about you know salting the wounds that have already opened up pretty pretty deeply. Uh, we're about we're about finding solutions. And so uh, that article is great. It dictates a lot of good points, and uh, and I highly recommend it. That article is free, and you can call us at one eight hundred eight seven zero eight six seven zero. Uh, to get a copy of that. Again, that's 800-870-8670. Also, you can email us at info at theinvestorsparadigm.com. All right, so uh, so Andy, Andy, we, we've had some really good, uh, really good discussions. I have a, a great deal of respect for you because of all of the uh, investiga- uh, investigation and studying into financial services and just how, how the economy works. And uh, and you or I, you and I are, are in the same you know kind of age age category. We're uh, we're in a generation where we're seeing you know a lot of a lot of different things going on with our government and them trying to resolve this financial crisis. And uh, and it places some concern. It places some concern on us. And so we're gonna we're gonna get into that today. Uh, but I'd like to ask you kind of a, a couple of questions as far as how you got started in the financial services industry. Is that okay? Sure. Cool. So from our conversations, you you know quite a bit of indiv- you know a lot of individuals and a lot of uh, a lot of big players in uh, in both the security side and also the insurance side of financial services. So how did uh, how did all that start? Well, I mean, it started with an interest in economics. It started with an interest in in particular Austrian economics, and uh, the, the the problem I saw was these, these economists that I that I read so much of their books. I mean, they knew everything about money. No, they they knew money in and out. Yet they didn't have any of it. So I saw this problem in this economics, uh, I guess, community that it was it was taken very theoretical, philosophically, even psychological, but it wasn't very practical or pragmatic. So I wanted to sort of take it into a, you know, take principles of economics in, into practicality and actually start, you know, doing work on that. So it, di- it didn't really it di- didn't really discount some of the theory that these guys believed in, but they just really n- never found an efficient way of, of applying the theory. Is that what sure, you're saying? Sure, sure. Yeah, they they never really applied it. They never took it on a practical level. But and that, and that was a problem. And I realized people are actually losing a lot of money because they don't have a knowledge of sound. Huh. And like economics is explain why the 401k is a failure. I'm sure we'll go through that later on. 
But so it, was, it started out like that, and then I started reading a lot of financial books, and then it was just curiosity. And I came across things, for example, like uh, why banks buy life insurance. I mean, I heard banks buy life insurance, but this question, why? You know, why would a bank need life insurance? So I, that way I called the uh, author of uh, The Pirates of Manhattan, Barry Dyke, and I started, started uh, talking to him a little. And I spoke to Nelson Nash, and no, that's how it sort of transitioned all together. Well, one of one of the one of the examples I always use. I mean, right right now, you know, there's a lot of comparison to our our economic times and the Great Depression. And John Maynard Keynes was, you know, supposedly the uh, the economic savior of uh, of the Great Depression based on his you know his theory uh, of of economics and how you know the government could get involved and, and save the day. Um, but you know he he was an economist, and as you were saying, you know they really don't find a really practical way of applying their their intelligence. And you know at, right after the uh, right after he came to the U.S. and helped out everything in the in the early 30s, uh, he went back to England and bankrupted two companies. And so and they were both financial companies. And so here's this guy that was you know that supposedly had all this you know knowledge and intelligence. And I'm not discounting the fact that he that he didn't. I mean he did. He was a smart he was a smart guy, but you know, there there has to be some practicality behind the theory, as you uh, as you said. But you know, you you getting involved with uh, with Nelson Nash, and Nelson is is quite a bit older, right? Older older years. He's he's seen a lot of you know ups and downs in the economy, and also you know Barry Dyke is is relatively older as as well. Uh, do you do you see a lot of of understanding uh, about economics or you know about just you know financial intelligence among you know individuals in our age age category? Completely honest. No, I, I don't. Why? Why? Well, why? Why don't? Why? I mean, because every we have to be honest with each other. I mean, we all we're all motivated by making money. I mean, we all go get jobs. We go to school, and I don't think that there's really anything bad behind it. That's just how we maintain our livelihood, sure. right? But yeah, you know, I mean, the basics yeah. of the you know the the foundation of of money and where money comes from is economics. So you would think that someone would want to have at least some understanding of economics, right? Sure. I mean. What Nelson Nash sort of uh, created the infinite banking concepts using life insurance was all about actually taking economics on a practical level. That, that's all actually infinite banking is. And I mean, whoever reads the book will see that half the book has actually got writings from Mises and it talks about uh, social security and socialism and all these different things. And it was actually interesting to me. Uh, if you go to the, towards the back of the book, you'll see he's got a recommended uh, book listing, and, it, and it's, um, it's for those who are interested in the stock market. And probably about 75% of those books are economic books, nothing to do with stock. So, I, I mean, Nelson Nash was a, another one that actually took economics on a practical level. But, I mean, even, even people his age, I mean, I, when, when I've spoken to them, they still don't take economics on a practical level. It's very rare to do so. It's not a common at all. Well, we tend, I mean, we, we tend to, you know, just as human beings and human nature, we tend to, we tend to put a great deal of trust in individuals. And I, I think it's good, it's good to, to be trustworthy, but when individuals are making financial decisions, they have to realize that the individual that's giving them financial advice and wanting their money, they have the same intentions as, you know, the investor, which is, they want to make money, and the way that they make money is by raising money from these individuals that also want to make money, right? But 
you know, the financial services industry, there's a, um, there's a, there's a couple books coming out and uh, the names names of the, the titles of the book uh, kind of escape me. Maybe they'll come back to me in a second. Actually, one is called No Nonsense No Nonsense Finance by Harold Harold oh, what is his name I can't remember. But anyway, he talks a lot about just financial professionals. They don't even have a real understanding of economics. They don't have an understanding of you know how how markets work and how the economy works. They're basically just you know a uh, a puppet of their of their hierarchy or the executives of whatever financial institution it is and basically they just convey whatever they're taught to their clients right yeah, and there's and then and so that's what I mean the information's out there I mean we have books upon books upon books whether it's you know Ludwig von Mises or other types of you know Austrian uh, economists or even you know there's you know like Frederick Bastier and you know there's a lot of economists throughout history that you know hit the nail right on the head and if individuals would just understand the basics behind that uh, you know they would they would probably be much further ahead or at least they wouldn't be making the decisions that they've made Sure. I mean, Leah, like I said before, people are losing a lot of money because they don't understand sound one-on-one economics. If, if they understood it, they would never put their money in a 401k. Yeah. And I mean, I actually wrote an article, I'm sure you know, Patrick, that actually explains this whole thing of linking the 401k and these principles to economics and how economics has actually explained that these uh, financial products are bound to fail. And the proof of it is right now. I mean, I know a lot of people right now making money in stock. I know a lot of people making money in real estate. I don't know one person that's making money in their 401k. Yeah, there's, and, and we're not going to get into a lot of the restrictions behind that vehicle. And this, I mean, it, it's an emotional issue. Whenever, whenever money, especially the loss of money is talked about, there's a lot of emotion attached to that. And so we we don't want to you know be on here for individuals that have money in these types of vehicles. We don't we, we just want to educate them. You know we want to get them to understand. Hey, you know there are there are options, and you know just looking at some of the inherent risks, they're very evident today. And well, at least last year when all of these funds started to tank and lost 30 percent. So, so what are what's uh, maybe kind of will transition into you know how how everything happened last year to what's going on. Right now, so obviously we have a uh, we have a lot of uh, a lot of individuals that are trying to cure cure the situation. So what is what's maybe your your take on what's going on in the economy right now, and maybe some of the solutions that are you know being uh, being thought up or derived? Well, well, sort of my take right now is, I mean, I, I believe that we're we're going the wrong way. I mean, the government's going the wrong way. The people are going the wrong way. Uh, What's happening right now, I mean, there's a major lack of confidence between the banks, you know, individuals, and the government. It's, it's a very unstable situation. There is no trust, and there's nothing out there to establish confidence. And that's what's really the key. I mean, when people have confidence, they start spending, they start investing, and that's what gets the economy moving. Mm. But I, I think, I mean, I'm not in the, in the minds of are people in Congress, but I think this, all these stimulus packages and the bailouts, they, I mean, when Bush proposed to have a $700 billion bailout, it was really for confidence, uh, to put confidence back in uh, the market rather than to stimulate it. But it's, we have a major lack of confidence and people aren't, uh, banks aren't lending money, people aren't putting money, people aren't spending money, and it's going the wrong way, and especially right now that we're going to, Head towards tax increases, and uh, you know, d d deductions won't be put on charities. And I mean, even 
you can't deduct the interest on your mortgage anymore for high-income people, and that's going to hurt the economy. That's going to hurt the economy really bad. And what's an alternative to that is really the opposite of what we're doing right now. Uh, I mean, everybody says lower taxes, but you can't have low taxes without uh, cutting spending. So the real key is first to the government to cut spending. Yeah. Cut spending big time and then ta lower taxes as a result of that. Because, I, I mean, Nancy Pelosi came out and said, you know, when we cannot afford a tax cut. And she's right. At this stage, we can't. Not with the government spending trillions of dollars. Money has but to come from somewhere. <laughs> sure, exactly. Exactly. And that's what Bush did. I mean, he lowered taxes, but the spending just increased. And, and that put us in a a uh, real bad situation that we're seeing right now. So lower tax, I mean, everybody wants lower taxes, and, and that's great. Lower taxes are great, but they need to be uh, the result of a cut spending from the government. Sure. Uh, they, they need to be the effect of that. Well, I think, um, just the, I think just the fact that the government is so involved in, you know, what the, the, the original tenets of the economy was to have a free, free economy, and part of having a free economy is to, is to have failure. I mean, failure is just not some happenstance. To every, you know, to every uh, effect, there's a cause. And what the cause of failure is is just people didn't do business right. And to jump in and try to save these businesses that, uh, you know, that that failed, right? You're, you're basically, you know, you're impeding what the free market is. And the free market is always going to weed out. Uh, it's always going to weed out failure. It's like, what if the government stepped in with eight-track players, you know, like 30 years ago? And all these eight-track, you know, eight-track fabricate, you know, fabricating companies or you know manufacturers—they were like, "No, you're gonna, you're gonna kill our business. We're not gonna make any money anymore." You know, if they didn't let them fail, you know, there wouldn't have been any innovation. There wouldn't be MP3 players. There wouldn't be CDs. There wouldn't be, you know, cassettes, which I guess you know was was after the eight-track player. But that's that's just a, a very simple explanation as to why there has to be failure in our economy. And letting letting these banks fail—I mean, should have let City fail. You know, you uh, should have let Merrill fail. All these, all these banks. Ha yeah, it was a, it was a catastrophe from the get-go. But you know, Einstein, Einstein said that you know the individuals that cause the problem rarely solve it. And I think right now we have to, you know, you have to look to a free economy and just let things let things be. But you know, obviously we have an administration that wants to solve a lot of problems. And I give him, you know, I give him a lot of credit. I give the administration a lot of credit for wanting to solve the problem. Right, that's a great a great motivation. But the solution to the problem isn't going to be doing what they're doing right now. That's just going to make the problem worse. So well, I mean, what what actually made the Great Depression the Great Depression was when the government actually increased taxes. You know, it, when Hoover increased taxes in 1930, that's what really killed it. And we're we're doing the same thing right now. And but, but like I said before, this isn't you don't cut taxes when the government's going to spend trillions of dollars. They got to cut spending and then cut taxes. Yep. And but, but you're right. I mean, the, so the government starts these problems and then they come and fix it. And every time a problem occurs, the government increases in size. I mean, I was reading an article by Ron Paul the other day, and he was actually illustrating this point that the government creates these problems and then tries to solve their own problems. And every time they do this, they increase in size. <laughs> so it's, I mean, yeah, you're right. The free market is a solution, but people are acting like the free market's ending in 2009, or it ended in, uh, it's ending, it ended in late 2008. In reality, the free market ended in 1913, <laughs> you know, when, when the Fed was introduced and then income taxes came along. 
it's been a long time since America's had a free market. But yes, we're going towards the left. Yes, we're going towards uh, more socialistic ideas. But yeah, the free market, we've, we haven't had a capitalist uh, society, as people call it, or a free market for since a long time. Yeah, almost, uh, all, almost a decade, or almost, you know, a, a mul yeah. Hundred years, yeah. <laughs> a century. <Yeah. laughs> so let's. Yeah. I want to kind of bring up. I want to bring up two points because you know, looking at all the money that's getting pumped into the economy, trillions and trillions of dollars. And I know that they say that you know the omnibus or the stimulus plan is being multi, you know, hundreds of billion. But eventually, it's going to translate into trillions, trillions of dollars of spending. When that money goes into, you know, in, it goes into uh, circulation. Right, that's going to dilute the value of money. So that's when you have a great deal of inflation. But as you were saying, you have to have you have to have taxes because the tax revenue that the government, uh, you know, government gets is what is used to to pay for all these different you know different spending plans. So those two things, taxes and inflation. Okay, how how uh, how vulnerable is a qualified plan? That's, let's just not say 401k, but let's look at you know IRAs and even Roth IRAs. Uh, or um, you know other type of qualified plans underneath the 400 you know section of the tax code, whenever interest or I'm sorry uh, both interest and income is deferred, the taxes are deferred to a later to a later date. So how how would you say inflation and taxes um, affects these types of qualified plans that people are pumping money into? Well, well, one thing to point is an uh, in inflation with taxes. Taxes are always going to increase. I mean, you compare taxes we we have today to we had 40 years ago to when they first came out. You know, income taxes first came out at 7%, and now what are they, like 35 to... Yeah, the top bracket's 35, yeah. Sure, sure. So they're going to increase, and they're going to go up in the future the way we're going up now. So when we defer taxes to a future date, what we're actually doing is we're accumulating taxes. So... In that sense, it's a real, it's a real big danger. That, uh, for, for, I mean, people actually invest in those plans for tax purposes, thinking they're going to save on tax. But when they defer tax and sort of um, say we're going to not, we're not going to pay taxes now, and we're going to pay it in the future, well, taxes are going to be higher in the future. And if your money is doing what it should be and increasing, the taxes on that are also going to increase. So for, for tax, it's actually it's a real bad thing to invest in. And contrary to what people tell you, these qualified pens are good for tax. Well, no, they're not. Because you're accumulating taxes. You're going to pay more taxes. So, but, but for an inflation, I mean, if, if your qualified plan is doing great and everything, well, that, that's good. But like, if your principal is at risk and your principal is decreasing like it has been now, well, of course, inflation is going to kill it. The value of the dollar is going to decrease by day, and so is your money. I mean, I mean, how much was a million 30 years ago to what's a million now? I mean, just the point I like to make is when Bill Clinton came in, he came up with this big stimulus as well, but it wasn't uh, passed because the Congress said it was too big, and that stimulus was $8 billion. <laughs> <Are you Yeah. laughs> That's so, I didn't know that. I mean that that was 1993. It wasn't that long ago. Now we're talking a hundred times ago. that. Yeah. Sure. So we've had a lot of inflation. There's a video on uh, YouTube, Patrick. It's called "An Inconvenient Debt." It's, um, it's Glenn Beck shows how much inflation we've had, and it, and it's scary. 
I mean, it's scary because people think inflation and what you're taught in economics these days is inflation is just price increase. Inflation is not price increase. It's just losing value of the dollar. Yep. And you're actually, you know, it's like a tax. You're paying more for the same thing. So inflation is also an extra tax. Every, every time we have the government, just the Fed, inject money in the economy, it's like you're, you're paying tax. Your tax increase is going up. So, yep. so it's kind of, it, it, it seems like there's, there's a perfect storm. You know, and that uh, that that bulk of the storm is going to hit in the uh, in the coming years, and so there has to be there has to be a, a change in ideology. There, and I know that right now, you know, the the main investment vehicle of most American families are these qualified plans. That it's just basically setting themselves up for a disastrous situation in the future. And but there are alternatives, right? One of the things that you mentioned was the infinite banking concept, which is a process that uh, that we teach. Right, but there, there are, there all are alternatives. That's just that you know the ingenuity of human beings. Once a human being recognizes that there's an inefficiency or a problem, right? Human ingenuity is, I'm going to find a solution. That's that's where you know entrepreneurialism comes from. I want to find a solution to this problem. And a lot of there's been a lot of solutions to how can you invest in something that doesn't have the risks that these types of plans have and there are, there are a lot of solutions out there but I know we have but we're gonna do for about five more minutes and I kinda wanted to skip some of the questions I uh, that I was gonna ask you I wanna jump right to uh, an article that I sent you Andy which was uh, posted about three I'm sorry five days ago on Kiplinger's and Kiplinger's it's a great website lot lot of information on there a lot of up-to-date uh, news stories in regards to investing in the economy and finances, etc. And uh, they came up with their new, you know, ten money myths, right? So as you, Andy, as you were reading through there, what were uh, what were some of the the myths that stood out from you? I know number six is what we're going to spend a majority of our time on, but what are some of the other myths that stood out to you? Well, the I mean, there were those number one that was sort of interesting, but yeah, you're right. I mean, not number six. Uh, I was actually surprised it showed up because <laughs> you, you don't actually, um, you know, see those uh, people actually speak of life insurance and those things. But I mean, yeah, I was I was pretty happy with number six. I mean, when when you see all these myths, I mean, it's it's all perspective, but it's all an opinion. It's all someone's yeah. bias, obviously. But yeah, I mean, and and bias isn't really a bad thing because. I mean, if you have a judgment on something, you have a bias. So, sure. I mean, you want a bias for something good, obviously. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually, uh, I'm gonna pull this up. I'm gonna pull this up and actually read uh, myth number, myth number six. And so, for those of you who want to check out all ten myths, there's no way we're gonna cover all of them today. But uh, just, uh, just type in Kiplinger. It's K-I-P-L-I-N-G-E-R uh, into your Google. Uh, and into your Google search, and it'll come up with you know just say top ten myths, and it'll show you what the most recent myths are. So I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read number six, and this is exactly I was kind of stoked. One of my one of my clients actually, uh, and, and good friends of mine sent me sent me this, and so it says, myth number six: life insurance is not a good investment. This canard spread as 401ks and IRAs supplanted cash value insurance as Americans' most popular ways to build savings while deferring taxes. True, the investment side of the insurance policy has higher built-in expenses than mutual funds. Well, and that's a you can see that, Andy. That's a that's based on perspective too, because you can structure the policy that so that there's very little expense. But anyway, uh, but two factors point to a revival of insurance as an investment. 
One is guaranteed interest credits on cash value, which means that if you pay premiums, you cannot lose money unless the insurance company fails. See savings guidelines, yada, 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 yada. If you're older than 65, now here's, here's another thing that I was really surprised to see at, at Kiplinger's. If you're older than 65, you can often sell the insurance contract to a third party for several times its cash value and pay taxes on the difference at a low capital gains rate. And that's a life settlement. So our main, you know, our main pitch is, hey, banks are buying gobs and gobs of insurance two ways. One, they're buying insurance on their employees, right, because they have some insurable interest, because they value what that insurance contract brings, which is both the cash value, the growth, the guarantees, and the death benefit. But banks, as of, you know, as of the last five years or so, have been buying billions and billions of dollars of life insurance from seniors, which means that they tell the senior, say, hey, senior, the likelihood that you're going to carry that contract to term is pretty, it's pretty slim. I will, I value that contract probably a lot more than you do. I'm willing to pay you 20, 30, 40 percent of the face amount to become the beneficiary of the life insurance policy. So they're buying gobs of insurance on one side on the individuals that they employ, and they're buying gobs of insurance on the other side uh, from from seniors. And they're buying it for the face value. So, and I know that I know that uh, you know as you've as you've, as you've as you've learned about insurance, and kind of got into the whole life settlement atmosphere, um, it it makes sense, doesn't it? What are maybe some of your thoughts on uh, on myth number six, talking about both buying life insurance for cash value and also buying life insurance for you know the potential of a life settlement? Well, here's the thing. I don't think anyone at Say our age should buy life insurance and hope to sell it till to hope to sell it at age of 65. No. <laughs> yeah. But for 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 people older, I mean that that's a that's a great option. And I mean the the point it is is that I mean I don't I don't think they're actually talking about the the efficient policies, Patrick. Yeah. But um, the, the point is that in life insurance, whole life insurance in particular. The flexibility you have is incredible. I mean, not not just like even the first year of the policy and down in the later years, say at age 65. And this is just one of the options that you can sell your policy and get more than your cash value. And I mean, that's the whole point. You want something that's flexible. You don't want something that has restrictions or uh, locks you up. You want something that you're free with. You know, uh, Nelson Nash um, mentions quite a lot that is to you know have free contracts with free people and, and that's key and that's really key but yeah life, life settlements are probably the best uh, thing you have for retirement really because I mean I've seen the, the power it has to do it I mean as, as you do uh, a lot of work in that area Patrick and I mean I'm sure you would agree for, for a senior a life settlement is a great option Oh yeah, it's and yeah. Most most seniors don't even they don't even believe it. But you know, it's a it's a really gr it's a it's a very it's a very fast growing market. Just because a lot of hedge funds, a lot of banks are starting to value death benefit because a death benefit has some some tax benefit has a lot of tax ben benefits and also there's some guarantees in insurance that really don't exist in any other type of, of financial vehicle. So. You know, it's uh, it, it's good. It's good to see that you know sites like this and individuals like yourself, we're we're starting to kind of grasp the idea that there are problems. Uh, but with every problem, there has to be a solution. 
and right now there are. And for those that are you know listening that are in these types of plans, uh, read our article. I think that's a, a first great step. You'll start to see the writing on the wall. And in reading that article, you might uh, be inclined to meet with us, and that's a uh, uh, we'd love to do that. We'd love to educate you. We're really big on education. We don't think that there is as much education that there needs to be in in uh, financial services right now. It's basically, hey, here, I have some money. I trust that you'll earn me some interest. Here you go. And that's you know that's the extent of investing these days. But I think that you know individuals that focus on educating, especially financial professionals that focus on educating their clients, the client's going to be aware of what that flexibility is and what their options are and what the risks and benefits to the plan are. But, well, Andy, we're, uh, we're out of time, but I, uh, I'm grateful that you, uh, you signed on. We'll, we'll have, you back on, have you back on again, but I appreciate your thoughts. Sure. Thanks, Patrick. No problem. All right, for those of you uh, who want to get involved and also that, uh, uh, that would like to get that article, our phone number again is 800-870-8670. That's 800-870-8670. You can also email us for a copy of that article at info at theinvestorsparadigm.com and paradigm is spelled P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M. Uh, we've also had a, a, you know, a lot of other uh, radio shows and so those are also available on iTunes. We've, uh, this is our sixth consecutive week of doing a podcast and we do plan on, on doing it uh, hopefully indefinitely but uh, pretty consistently. And so for those of you who are listening for the first time, uh, don't forget to, to check back with our past podcasts. And, uh, and get some more information about what we're up to and, uh, and what options you have through this difficult economy. All right, everybody, thanks for signing on. Uh, signing on. We'll talk to you next week.